All right, so introduce myself. I'm Dr. Kevin Connors, for those who don't know me. Uh, I have uh, been treating people with cancer for a little over 20 years now, and uh, I'll give you a story kind of how I got into it, so you kind of know, you know my background. So I graduated in 1986 as a chiropractor, um, but I went to chiropractic school because I was helped by a chiropractor. Uh, I was very much into sports and got hurt, and my mother, praise God, she was really into natural things. She helped actually, she's one of the founding people to start the Stillwater Hoop Co-op, which is now River Market. Um, and that started when we were in our, probably when I was in sixth grade, she really got into natural things. Matter of fact, I think it was when I was in sixth grade, maybe fifth grade was the last time I ever went to a medical doctor. Uh, nothing against medical doctors, but uh, I had really bad headaches and uh, and my mom took me to a medical doctor and got x-rays and he said his final diagnosis was well he's just got growing pains and i never forget my mom walking out of that clinic and she was holding my head she goes that's ridiculous doesn't hurt to grow <laughs> brought me to a chiropractor and, and and i went to chiropractors this my parents brought us to chiropractors we're eight out of nine kids and we just did more natural healing and that was really different back then um, but I'm very thankful for my mom and what she did and what she taught me. But that gave me a desire to be a chiropractor. And the chiropractor I went to did a lot of kinesiology and acupuncture. And that's what really thrilled me. How you can help a person get better, not just with adjusting them, but with, with different methods with, for all sorts of different diseases. So when I went to chiropractic school, I wanted to be a kinesiologist and an acupuncturist. Well, going to Northwestern, they teach more of a basic chiropractic, and I was a little disappointed. So I had to learn that stuff from seminars. And in doing that, there's a blessing to that because I became a seminar junkie. So I just started learning from seminars and, at that time, cassettes and anything I could get my hands on to learn. And when I graduated and started practicing in 1986, um, the term now would be functional medicine, but we didn't have that term back then. So, but I saw mainly, you know, adrenal, thyroid patients, uh, but still no cancer patients. But while I was in school, one of the things that I studied was this machine called the Rife machine, R-I-F-E, named after Royal Raymond Rife. And I was, for some reason, now I know, but at that time I didn't know, I was just absolutely enthralled <coughs> with this Rife machine. It's like, I gotta get me one of these Rife machines, but they were expensive and it's like, all of Rife's work with Rife machines was with cancer. So it's like, okay, I'm a chiropractor, I can't treat cancer patients. And I had zero desire or zero um, thought that I would ever be treating cancer patients at that time. But I was still thrilled with a Rife machine. Well, a few years into practice, I started to grow really dismayed. I just felt like there was a hole in my heart about something I was probably just was not it's just, this was not what I envisioned. Um, and I just, I just felt really empty. I ended up, you know, my wife and I had long discussions and uh, I put our practice up for sale, thinking maybe we need to switch to a different area. I had a very large practice in Woodbury at the time. This was back in 1992. And um, uh, the practice broker said, don't worry, it's gonna take at least a year and a half to sell your practice. You have a very large practice. It sold in 11 days. And I was I had to face this, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do? 
Well, it was really a God thing, because what God led us to do is a series of different events and eventually going into full-time missionary work, where we moved down to Mexico and we served at a orphanage mission school. I taught at the mission school, and my wife and kids, we worked with the orphanage and worked with the really poor people down in Mexico, and our real mission was to go help the poorest of the poor, so we ended up working a lot with the border town in Matamoros um, and helping the people there. Uh, we did that for completely self-funded, which was a bit crazy, but um, we went for a three-year stint, really, and we ended up running out of money after a year because there was so much need. <laughs> so we ended up coming back to practice here, and I just I wasn't actually sure that I was supposed to come back to practice. And I thought I don't want to go back and just be a chiropractor. I just did. I just felt like that wasn't my calling, but I felt like I didn't know what else to do. So in 1997, we came back, and I opened up a practice in Stillwater, and I still had this burning desire of a Rife machine. You know, and I still in my mind, but where is this coming from? But I researched it. And I found the Rife machine that I wanted to buy. I called the company and got a pamphlet. I actually had a pamphlet of the Rife machine taped up on my desk. Someday I'm going to have this Rife machine. I had no idea why. And then this patient who I had been treating for about, oh, I don't know, eight months. Uh, she was a retired gal. Uh, lived up in Pine City. Drove to Stillwater to come see me. And she said, and she was always this happy-go-lucky gal. She was about 68 years old. She, she came in one day and she looked terrified. She said, I have to talk to you right now. So I pulled her in the back room. She said, um, I have breast cancer in both breasts. And they told me if I don't do chemo and radiation that I got three months to live. And I'm like, uh, okay, why, why are you telling me this? You know, what, besides me praying for you or what are you? She goes, no, you don't understand. I'm not doing the chemo. I'm not doing it. I nursed my friend through the chemo, and this was her interpretation. She said, she died of the chemo, and I am not going to go that route. So if you can't help me, I'd just rather die. That, those were her words. And I just said, and this was my Holy Spirit aha moment, okay, that it's time to buy a rack machine. <laughs> so I just said, John, don't even ask me what it is. I'm going to go call and order this right machine and uh, get it next day aired to me. Uh, can you come back tomorrow and we're going to start treating you with the right machine? She goes, whatever. I'm doing whatever you're going to tell me to do. So that was my start. I got the right machine. She started getting treated with the right machine. Well, long story short, she lived 13 years and died of a heart attack in her early 80s. So that was my start. That was my first cancer patient. Well, actually, I did, I did practice part-time down in Mexico, down in South Texas, with a chiropractor down there that did kinesiology. We did have a multiple myeloma patient down there that we had great success with. But this was the first time we had used a rife machine. And this was my first, like, wow, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This gives me, this gives me a sense of purpose that I did not have before. And then I can't, the chiropractor. I can't treat cancer patients. What am I supposed to do? Uh, a sign out or something? I'd go to jail. So God sent me another cancer patient, a brain cancer patient, about five months later, and another cancer patient a couple months after that, another cancer patient. I'm like, where are you finding me? You know, <laughs> this is before the internet. Okay. And um, and then it was just, I just saw that I just felt the hand of God that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And uh, I, uh, 
ended up going back to school, getting an AMA fellowship in integrative cancer therapy and several other things. And, um, and then through a, another series of events, I'm getting dragged in front of the state board multiple times and raked over the coals for what I was doing. Uh, finally, got an attorney and he said, uh, you know you practice chiropractic, what do you have a chiropractic license for? Why don't you just do this under your pastoral medical license? And then another long story short, realized that we live in a state that allows me to practice this um, as an unlicensed uh, practitioner as long as I have people sign forms that gives them full clarification so they know what I'm doing. So what a blessing that Minnesota, really Minnesota and Arizona are really the only two states that I can really do what I'm doing without being uh, uh, prosecuted and persecuted by state agencies. So it is just... It was totally set up by the Holy Spirit completely, I believe that. And in the process of doing this, we've seen a lot of people helped with cancer. Now, I, I, not, I don't treat cancer. Legally, I can't say that. But honestly, I don't say that. I, I don't feel like I'm a healer or I'm a treater. I feel like I'm a guide. And that's really what a doctor is supposed to be, is to guide people in the right direction prayerfully and uh, honestly on what I would do um, for myself or for my wife or sister or brother uh, the same thing that I would recommend for my patients and that's just the way we've run this practice um, since then. So I gave up my chiropractic license I don't know, about 10 years ago. So all we saw was cancer and Lyme patients for years because I had Lyme three times <laughs> I caught it in the early phase, thank goodness. And I have another doctor that works with us. Um, she had chronic Lyme really bad. Uh, she used to, she's not here full-time anymore, but um, she um, helps us with some Lyme patients too. But lately we've been so busy with cancer patients, we've just uh, had to just stay focused on that. In this process, we're here to talk about how to prevent cancer. So um, there's all sorts of... Um, things out there on the internet of what you can read about cancer and what causes cancer. So let's talk a little bit about that. So when we, uh, one of our four pillars of care for cancer patients is looking for the cause. Now there always is a cause. Now you might go to your oncologist, have cancer and say, well, doctor, what's the cause of my cancer? And invariably you're going to get the answer of, well, I don't know whether it's genetic or we don't know. We just got to treat the cancer. Don't worry about that. But that's kind of silly because the World Health Organization acknowledges the causes of cancer and the Centers of Disease Control studies the causes of cancer. Unfortunately, it's all done post-mortem. So after a patient dies, if there's a study going and you donate your body, then they will do some different testing. For instance, H. pylori, which is a gram-negative bacteria that's common in the gut, that is the cause of almost all um, uh, stomach ulcer issues, is the number one cause of stomach cancer worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. But I've had several stomach cancer patients that come in and I say, well, did they address the H. pylori? And the patient looks at me like I'm talking Greek to them, because they've never heard that term before. And I feel like that's sad, even though that is very well-documented information. The person's got stomach cancer. Why don't you address the H. pylori if that is the cause of the cancer? And many times it is. So there are causes of cancer. But ultimately, um, 
when you talk about a cause of cancer, you have to understand the physiology of cancer. So what cancer is, is something got inside of a cell, just one cell to begin with, and caused that cell to go into rapid replication. That's what cancer is, is a cell that's going into rapid replication. So if a cell goes into rapid replication and it's unattended, meaning that there's nothing stopping it, then you're going to end up with a diagnosis of cancer. So the other thing that has to take place with a cancer diagnosis, so normally a cell lives a certain length of time, depending on what type of cell it is, and then that cell, as it reproduces itself, will go through a process of cell death called apoptosis. So apoptosis is more like a recycling of that cell. Cell forms these blebs and it breaks down and that cell dies. With a cancer cell, that's not taking place either. So the cell is in rapid replication. It is not going through normal program cell death apoptosis. And that's what a diagnosis of cancer is. But a cancer, a, a cancer mass has to be fairly large before it's even diagnosed. If, if you have a number of cells at the tip of a of a pin tip or a tip of a pin, it's over 2 million cells large. So if you do uh, a CT scan and say, well, it's a very small mass, it's only 5 millimeters round, well, you have millions and millions and millions of cells there. And unfortunately, by that time of diagnosis, many of those cells have broken off and are circulated around the body. Those are called circulating tumor cells that have yet to start rapidly replicating, at least to the size that it might be distinguishable on a CT or a PET scan. So we always remind people not to be gloomy, but once you have a cancer diagnosis, it's a pretty good chance you have cancer cells in your body, even if that you're, you're, you remove your breast, you debulk the cancer, you remove the colon, whatever, you still have cancer cells and you want to treat it. So when we talk about prevention of cancer, we could also we could also draw in somebody who's had cancer and has conquered cancer or has gotten a, a clean bill of health by their oncologist because the PET scan shows clean. Remember, in order for a PET scan to show positive readings, enough uptake of glucose in a PET scan in order to show a hot spot, you have to have many millions of cells large. So if you have cancer growing at 100,000 cells, there's no way it's going to uptake glucose yet. You're not going to see it on a CT scan, no way on an x-ray, and not even on a PET scan. So it's always good to be thinking prevention, whether you have a clean bill of health post-cancer diagnosis, doing the chemotherapy or whatever you did, or I got a clean bill of health, I went and got a preventative PET scan. Well, they don't do that, but if you could go in and do a preventative PET scan and everything looks clean, the chance that you still have cancer cells are pretty high. So I always tell people you should really treat yourself as if you have cancer all the time. You should always be thinking that. Um, because, and then you go, well, get back, getting back to cause, you know, because if we really want to prevent cancer, we want to kind of address that piece, that cause piece. Um, why is cancer so prevalent today? Um, it's just kind of crazy, isn't it? When, when, when the war on cancer was first initiated in 1971 by Richard Nixon, when he, he allocated millions and millions of dollars to, to figure out the cause of cancer, and um, all of it went to pharmaceutical, right? None of it went to, we're going to find a herbal you know, solve, uh, solution to cancer. No, that did not go that way. Everything went to pharmaceutical. We're going to find 
how we can cure cancer, and they declared in five years we're going to have cancer wiped out. At that time, one, on average, one in 21 Americans were diagnosed with cancer. One in 21. Wow. Today, it's one in about 2.5, 2.7. Oh, okay, this is a war on cancer. We are, we are getting beat like the Packers against the San Francisco Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting killed here. <laughs> So it's a yeah, bad reference. Um, but this, we're not winning this war on cancer, all right? So what is the problem? Are we looking in the wrong directions for the solution to cancer? Maybe. Uh, but the incident of cancer is so much higher. So, I mean, doing chemotherapy isn't causing more cancer. You know, these people are already diagnosed. They're already in that statistic. So what in the world is going on? Well, you do have to point to, um, since 1971, what are some things that have changed in our society? So there's a lots of them. You know, the increased number of vaccines. Okay, I said it. Vaccines. All the chemicals in vaccines. All the adjuvants that they put in vaccines. That has to have an effect. I'm not saying it's the cause of cancer. Uh, increase uh, chemicals in our environment. Um, your sweater isn't dyed with blueberries, I'm pretty sure. Uh, nor yours with raspberries, right? So all those chemicals in our environment have to go somewhere. So um, you, you know, we are eating food that has that is GMO, uh, genetically modified. What's that doing to us? We're eating food laced with Roundup glyphosates. What is that doing to us? Um, we're eating food that's processed with different chemicals. Um, we're, our carpets are gasifying. I, mean, I don't care if you eat organic and do everything right. You're still exposed to this stuff. You know, we can't get away from it. Uh, we have estrogen disruptors, plastics um, in our society, more, much more than we've had 50 years ago. We could go on and on and on. There's dozens and dozens of possible causes that even if you're doing everything right and trying to eat right and, and take care of yourself and organic, and that's one of the biggest comments that we get from people. I can't figure out why I have cancer. I've been eating organic for 50 years. Well, even your organic food has glyphosates and stuff in it because it's, it's cross-contaminated. Uh, so we could do everything right and we're still exposed to more poisons than our ancestors that's just the that's just the bottom line from mercury in our teeth to we could go on and on uh, so it's an endless thing that you know you could chase down so what I try to tell people when you talk about prevention of disease is I, I just do your best job without making it a god in your life you don't want to make this an idol in your life, or do, nor do you want to be governed by fear. So I don't think that's healthy whatsoever. Matter of fact, anxiety and fear um, over getting cancer or the possibility of getting cancer can be just as much a driver of cancer as you know chemicals in your food. So you have to have a balance in life. So you try to eat right, you try to do the best job, try to buy organic food, there's a clean 15, dirty dozen list out there that you can Google on the internet where the most common things that have the most contaminants in it are the things that you want to buy organic. So most people that they're into natural foods and natural things, 
can understand those things. Um, but what do you do when you've done everything right and you still end up with a diagnosis of cancer? That's a question for the ages, right? So most of our patients in this clinic, we're an alternative clinic. We don't offer chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. Most of our patients have already gone that route. Um, you think, well, why don't, are people more alternatively minded in this day and age than they were 30 years ago? I answer yes, most likely they are. But when you hear that you have a diagnosis of cancer, most people get really scared. And then they make decisions that maybe they wouldn't have made if they would have slowed down a little bit, taken a step back, and really taken some time to think about this and pray about it and just do their own research. They're afraid, and I understand that. Fear could govern our decisions. Um, and you know, one of my biggest things that I say is don't ever make a decision based upon fear. Even coming here, don't make this, don't make a decision coming to us based upon fear. Make a decision coming to us or doing anything based upon careful consideration and prayerful consideration of what you're supposed to be doing. So that's, that's my recommendation. So when you're trying to prevent cancer, there are some other things you could do from a nutraceutical standpoint that can be beneficial. Um, so when we talk about hormone-driven cancers, like ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, even prostate cancer, and certainly breast cancer, um, uh, because there's so many estrogen disruptors in our society, an estrogen disruptor is a chemical that will affect our conversion of estrogen, and we can end up getting, quote unquote, bad estrogens in higher concentration that can then affect certain receptor sites on cells and cause and block apoptosis. Remember, that's what could happen with cancer. So um, hormone-positive cancers, that's what's really going on. The receptor sites of apoptosis are blocked and the, the cell can't go through apoptosis. So long story short, a preventative thing that both men and women can do is try to, um, try to eliminate as many uh, exposures to estrogen receptors, that would be plastics, um, and uh, glyphosate, and all sorts of things that cause other cancers as well. But from a nutraceutical standpoint, there are some, some specific nutrients that you can take that will help pull bad estrogens out of your body. For instance, I tell my daughters to take uh, a product that has DIM in it. DIM is a is a nutraceutical that helps pull bad estrogens out of your body. And we put all our cancer, all our breast cancer patients on DIM. But it'd be really wise to start taking things like that prior to getting cancer. So we, in our store, we have a breast cancer prevention bundle that has pro uh, products with DIM and other things that can help balance estrogens because not all, not all breast cancers are hormone uh, driven, but even, um, uh, triple negative breast cancer, we have found in our testing, still have a hormone uh, piece to it. So uh, going on a product like that, and there's multiple other things that could be, that could help pull bad estrogens out of your body, could be beneficial. Uh, and then as far as uh, like colon cancer prevention and things, some of the biggest uh, 
things that are beneficial for that is that the, is the same kind of nutritional protocols that would be beneficial for anybody with any other health condition. Making sure that you have daily bowel movements. Making sure that you're detoxifying. Uh, because it is toxins that get in your body that are not getting out of your body that get into the cell and disrupt that replication cycle and disrupt that cycle and ability of that cell to go through apoptosis. So it's really all about detoxification because it's not just what you eat that is what you are, it's uh, what you absorb, whether you breathe it in or you spill it on yourself or you work with chemicals all day. Uh, but it's even more than that, it's really what you don't detoxify. So whatever you don't detoxify becomes a part of you. Those toxins have to be stored somewhere and they're stored inside your cells. And at some point in time, maybe 30 years later, if that toxin sitting inside your cell interrupts that apoptotic pathway or the replication pathway in the nucleus, then rapid replication can take place. That's why people could be exposed to a polio vaccine when they're six years old and when they're 60, that can't be the cause of their cancer because that toxin is sitting inside the cell. Okay? Mercury, sitting, mercury has a half-life of like 15 million years. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't just disappear. So these chemicals have to be stored somewhere. If they're circulating in your blood and your liver is overwhelmed at the time of that circulation, it will be shunted to the cells. So it won't stay in the blood or you'll die. So it'll be shunted to the cells and then it just sits inside the cell. Hopefully, um, doing no damage until you die at 120 years old. But unfortunately, the more things that are stored in cells, the greater risk that you have of that thing causing a problem. And that's really what the cause of cancer is. Less than 5% of cancers really have a genetic cause. It's really a toxin cause uh, or a hormonal issue cause. So detoxifying, supporting those detoxification pathways, that's one of the reasons why we look at everybody's genetics and look at those detoxification pathways, supporting that to make sure that the exit of toxins, it has the ability to, to get out of the body is really, really important. Okay, so um, even if you do everything right um, and you're detoxifying and you're taking good nutrients and you're you're eating only organic and you're, you're trying to buy clothes that are dyed with blueberries. <laughs> you know, but there are organic clothes. My wife buys our grandkids organic cotton clothes because you're buying cotton. Uh, my cotton shirt here certainly isn't organic. And, you know, what is sprayed on the cotton fields? A whole bunch of chemicals. What is up against my skin all day? A whole bunch of chemicals. What am I absorbing through my skin? Some of those. And uh, the rest are gasifying, and I'm probably breathing them in. And if I can't detoxify them fast enough, they're going to be a part of me in my cells, and they can disrupt my cells. So I'll be the first to admit that I have not lived a perfect life. We lived in, in we work in the slums of Mexico walking uh, you know across streets in the in the um, shanty towns where feces was running down the, the little tea streams um, between the, the cardboard homes and and that's where we ministered you know for a period of time and um, and maybe dirtier than that we live in America <laughs> so 
um, with all sorts of chemicals. You know, and when, one of the reasons why we ended up having to come back early from Mexico is my kids got, a couple of my kids got so sick because down at the tip of Texas, down in the Rio Grande Valley, there's all these Maquiladora plants, which are plants that with the EPA in the United States, they can't use this spray paint. So they open up a plant right across the border and then they can also pay workers $30 a week to work there. And, uh, and then they can use spray paint on their Ford vans that they can't use here in the United States. And down in that valley, all this, it just stunk like, oh, it was just horrible smell, especially on a hot day, which was about 300 days of the year down there. And, um, and it was, it was, my kids started getting really sick. But, you know, you're born and raised there, you just get used to that stuff. And those chemicals are just, just become a part of you. So the risk of all sorts of diseases goes higher. So we could try to do everything we can, but we can't get away from it. The old saying is you can run, but you can't hide from chemicals that can, that can end up being cancer causers. So you have to deal with that. So what do you do if you do get cancer? So, um, but before I go on to that, let's kind of open it up for questions. I'm talking quickly here. Anybody have comments or thoughts or questions or a way that you want this to go? Because I want to address what you guys want to address. Do you have like a standard detox that you recommend for? Standard detox. So should we talk a little bit about detoxification? So one of the mistakes that people make with detoxification uh, is they start up too high. Now I'll explain what I just said. So how you detox. So, okay, I absorbed something, you know, let's say I ate some chemicals and it got into my bloodstream, it circulated around my bloodstream. Um, and it gets stored in my cells, all right? So I have to detox because I got junk stored in my cells. So how am I going to get that junk out of my cells? So uh, this is what I mean by starting up too high. If we start with the thought process that we want to get it out of our cells, then we could actually hurt ourselves. Because how you get it out of your cells would be what I call phase zero. I call it phase zero because... The liver actually has a phase one, phase two, and phase three. So phase zero is pulling it out of the cells into the blood so that it could get into the liver and go through phase one detox. So in phase one detox, without getting too technical, it's converted to a water-soluble substance so it can go into phase two detox in the liver and then phase three detox, which is then putting it in the bile so that it could go into the gallbladder and into the duodenum, the small intestine, so that it could go out into the toilet. So there's a phase one, meaning pulling it out of the tissue, or phase zero, pulling it out of the tissue, phase one in the liver, phase two in the liver, phase three in the liver, and then you could say phase four in the colon, uh, and then getting it out of the colon would be phase five. So that's what I call it. Um, I actually just made that up. So, um, but all those things are true. So it's best though that you start at the bottom. You have to be having regular bowel movements. That's number one. Oh, I am. I have regular bowel movements once a week, whether I like it or not. Nah, that's not regular bowel movements. So regular bowel movements are defined at least one a day. So you have to have at least one bowel movement a day. Two, three would even be better. So you have to be eliminating your bowel. And you want to have fairly quick transit time. 
meaning that if you ate corn today, you don't see it in a week. You know, you see it that next day. So, um, in your stool. So you want to be eliminating. Number two, you want to be binding in the in the gut. So that's that would be what you could call phase four. So you want to bind things in the gut. But one of the one of the most common ways that we toxify ourselves is we reabsorb toxins that already went through phase one, phase two, phase three. So our liver's doing all this work, going through phase one, phase two, phase three, dumping it into the colon, and then you're reabsorbing it. And your liver's going, what the heck? Didn't I just see you yesterday? <laughs> so we don't want that to take place. Mm. So we always start with, when you start with a detoxification program, so I don't like box detoxes, you make sure you're eliminating your stools. And a good thing to do is to start with a binder. So there's lots of different binders out there. Activated charcoal would be, called, would be considered a binder. Um, I like um, some of the different clays as binders. And uh, so we use a binder from some different companies, and we can get into that later. And that's a good thing to start with. And you can do all these things at the same time, but you can be sequential in this. You have like a kit in your store? We do, and we can point you to that direction. And then phase three is you have to be making adequate bile. This is taking place in the liver now. So you have to be making adequate bile. And this is a problem. This is a huge problem, and this is one of the causes of gallbladder <coughs> issues, is inadequate bile production. So bile needs certain substances. You need uh, phosphatidylcholine in order to make adequate bile. So taking some choline can be extremely beneficial so that you increase the bile production because bile is what carries the phase two substrates into the gallbladder and then into the colon. If you don't have a gallbladder, right into the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine. So you need adequate bile. So using a choline, phosphatidylcholine product could be very beneficial. <coughs> and then phase two is a, another process in the liver that it needs other different nutrients can be beneficial. And phase one is another process. Most, a lot of the box detox, you have to be careful, is I took milk thistle, because milk thistle is really good for detox. It is really good for detox, but it's good for phase one detox. So if you do too much phase one detox, um, then and you don't have adequate bile, it's going to back up the liver and dump it right back into the blood again, and it just circulates around and dumps it into some other cell. And then phase zero would be how am I going to pull it out of the tissue, and that would be like typically with a chelator. So a chelating agent is something that grabs onto something and pulls it out of the tissue, and then brings it to the liver introduces it to the liver, hey, you got space for some toxins here. Yeah, we got space, the liver takes it in, phase one, phase two, phase three, it goes through that process. But if you're not making bile, let's say, your, your liver's like, hey man, we are overworked, I can't do it, you know, keep going. And it circulates around again, hey, you got space, I already told you we're overworked. So it's gonna <laughs> dump it into another cell, and all you've done is moved it from this cell to that cell, and you really don't make yourself any healthier. Can I ask, why would not make? Why don't you make bile? You can have deficiencies in um, in uh, phosphatidylcholine. That's probably one of the most common things. Uh, one of the worst diets that ever was introduced is a low-fat diet, which caused a lot of that and a lot of gallbladder issues. 
So, and then you could even have a backup. So simplify here because you can have a backup because you can have gallstones too. So you want to do a gallbladder flush and make sure that that's cleaned out. And so, but uh, it's the most common reason for lack of bile production is just lack of substrates. Is it a problem more if you don't have a gallbladder? No, it's not a problem anymore if you don't have a gallbladder. If you don't have a gallbladder, the problem is is that you'll just get this constant seepage of bile into the small intestine. Normally, if you eat fat, then it goes into the small intestine, then the gallbladder squeezes a whole bunch of bile in there to digest the fat. So the problem without a gallbladder is you're going to have poorer digestion of fat because you don't get enough bile at that given time that that fatty substance is sitting in the small intestine. So is a high good fat diet important more so then? Or no, so or with no. gallbladder you want to you want to eat you don't want to eat a lot of fat at any given time. You can take some digestive aids with gallbladder like ox bile supplements. Um, that's what most what we recommend people without a gallbladder if you're going to eat a fatty meal take some ox bile with it. And that usually solves the problem. How about the good fat, the high good fats? Still, That's fat still is fat. Not good so fat is fat. Something. So you're not going to get that breakdown of that okay. fat. So if you eat really, you eat some good coconut oil because coconut oil is good for you, right? And you don't have a gallbladder. Like a keto diet. Yeah, you're going to only break down a small percentage of that fat, and you're going to have fatty stool issue, and it's going to coat your intestines. So still, you with a gallbladder issue, you with no gallbladder, you want to address that issue separately. You want to add either ox bile to your diet, or eat don't eat a fatty meal. Eat fat like throughout the day. Still need to get fat in, right? But if you're not breaking it down, you won't absorb it. So you could eat all the fat you want. If you're not absorbing it, you're not getting it in. So it's still outside of your body, but it's in your colon. So you're just losing it in the toilet. So you want to be able to absorb it. So you need those those helps. Are digestive enzymes similar digestive to what Digestive enzymes will not help break down fat. Okay. So digestive enzymes will help break down some carbs and proteins, but mm-hmm. digestive enzymes will not break down fat. You need you need bile to break down fat. So the way to get it is ox bile. It's a, it's a very inexpensive supplement. Okay. One more quick question you hear about apple cider vinegar, cinnamon, cayenne, lemon kind of things, simple ways to help detox. Do they work? So uh, apple cider vinegar craze um, (laughs) is very beneficial because it's acidic. So and one of the problems with digestion is a lack of hydrochloric acid production in the stomach. And that's another story. Usually you need B vitamins to make hydrochloric acid. And you need hydroxyl groups to make hydrochloric acid. And most people have a deficiency in hydrochloric acid production in the stomach. So hydrochloric acid is part of the digestive process. So digestion is breaking down the foods so it can be absorbed. And hydrochloric acid in the stomach helps break down mainly carbohydrates. Um, So when I have a deficiency of HCL in my stomach, these carbohydrates will go into my small intestine larger than they should have, less digested, larger particles. You'll get less absorption, and um, that could those sugars could basically feed uh, and 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 offgrow wrong microbiota in the as the in, through the small intestine as it goes through. So it misses its absorption sites because it's not fully broken down, 
and then those those saccharides can feed your microbiota, the bad microbiota, in a bad way and can kind of throw off your gut balance too. So apple cider vinegar isn't necessarily So helpful. apple cider vinegar is very beneficial. So if I take apple cider vinegar with my food, that adds acid to help break down okay. that food. My only argument with apple cider vinegar is uh, that's not the acid that's that your stomach uses normally. Why don't you just take HCL tablets? Uh, that's that HCL hydrochloric acid is the type of acid that's used by your stomach, and quite honestly, it's a whole lot cheaper than buying apple cider vinegar. So this apple cider vinegar craze is beneficial. Hey, it works because it's going to acidify your stomach. So your stomach is the only place in your body that you want to stay acid, right? So you need a pH balance in the rest of your body, your, except your stomach. It's got to be a pH of like 2.0 or something like that. That's pretty acidic. And you don't have that, and that's produced by the hydrochloric acid. So you're going to take apple cider vinegar, and that will help acidify your stomach. That's good. Let's just take HCL with your food. So we'll recommend apple cider vinegar. I personally don't take it. Use... And they recommend morning and night. So that's your easy talk for not talking about. You come up before food. I'm talking about before food. That's really what you want in a sink. If you take an apple cider vinegar or HCL tablets on an empty stomach, most people are so deficient in HCL, it, it will do nothing but good. But if you're just slightly deficient in HCL and you take HCL or apple cider vinegar, um, you'll, you'll, it'll not sit good in your tummy. You'll get a little tummy ache because it's, it's, it's too acidic. Follow me? So, um, you know, I'm not big on, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing apple cider vinegar, um, but uh, from a physiological standpoint, it makes sense, but there's less expensive ways to acidify your stomach in a more natural way, the way your stomach is already acidified. Yeah. And as far as knowing how much to take, is do you do that test where you take it and you see as far as like how many tablets of it? Because that can vary quite a bit, right? It can from... vary quite a bit, and it'll vary with each person will vary day to day. So it really depends on what you're eating and such too. So it's the, you know, there's testing. All you could take it is it keep ramping up on it until you get a tummy ache or something like that. Um, there's, that's not a perfect way to do it. Um, there, there really isn't a perfect way to do it because your stomach acid will vary throughout the day. And with each meal that you eat, that's changing your stomach acid as well. So, um, the, what, what I tell people is start with one with each meal and see how you're doing with digesting. Depending on what the person's problems are, you could kind of guide it that way. And you could bump to two. Plus, it depends on the product that you're taking. Mm -hmm. So um, we used to use a different product that was smaller. We used to get people up to sometimes 12 of those. We use a product that's a little bit larger. It has a digestive enzyme with it now. So they tend, to, at least we found, that they can take a lot less. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I have a lot of questions, but one of my questions is um, when you work with your cancer patients, um, <clears throat> what do you find like on the root cause of the emotional spiritual side as like general what you see? And then what do you typically recommend for prevention of how to prevent like an emotional spiritual route to cancer? Um, well, there's a lot of, I mean, unforgiveness is a huge one, right? Um, Fear is a huge one, um, but when we test people, we don't know if, or if, if it's necessarily the cause, 
but it's a piece of the cause always. Uh, and we don't always know that if it's that it's after the person was diagnosed, right? So, uh, but I will tell you, in general, our patients that do the best uh, uh, are the are our patients that go, okay, I'm not sticking my head in the sand here. I have cancer. I can face reality, um, and not that they haven't already or have to go through phases of grief and such that you have to go through when you start realizing that you're not going to live forever on this earth, right? But um, but ultimately, they get to the point of acceptance. You know, that's why I titled my book, Stop Fighting Cancer and Start Treating the Cause, because way back then, I even started to recognize that one of the worst things that can, from an emotional state that a person can have with cancer, is to have this 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 angry like I'm gonna beat this cancer I'm not gonna let it win I'm gonna beat this thing it's like I don't think that's a real healthy relationship with this disease process that's going on um, and we found that most people that had that attitude didn't fare well um, and the second attitude that also didn't fare well is the people that could not control their anxiety. Um, and there's multiple reasons for that that stem from all sorts of past experiences to, uh, you know, to, to other spiritual issues. But being able to get counseling to be able to control one's anxiety is really, really important. Um, and there's other nutritional pieces to anxiety with glutamates and such that we could go into in depth. But um, it's that it's the patients that... They're the best, are the ones that go, okay, I have cancer. Taking a more pragmatic approach that I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to pray about it. And if I feel like I'm led to go do chemotherapy, I'm going to go do chemotherapy. And I'm going to trust that this is what God's got for me. And this is, I'm going to do it and, and, and hope that it's going to work. Uh, uh, when people, even when they go the standard route, I got a new chemo, this is just killing me. And like, that's not a good attitude. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. You have to have hope and and uh, and, and good plans that it's going to work for you. So, um, or at least in peace that whatever God's got planned for you is the best thing for you. So that's 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 the people that fare the best that that are just that have come to that conclusion that this is what I have. I have to deal with it. I'm going to be wise about it. I'm going to seek good counsel. I'm going to find good guides through this process. Um, but I'm going to trust that God's got a plan in this and he's sovereign. And, and I'm going to trust him in this. Um, even though it might not end the way I would want it to end, I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to trust God through this process. Those are the people that, it's easy to say that. Oh, that would be me. Um, but it's harder to, to live that. And everybody's got to go through that those grief processes. And, and, and um, might as well put it out there right now because it's all over my website. I also have uh, stage four cancer. So, and I lived a perfect life, but only ate organic food. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> I did not live a perfect life, but only eat organic food. And I still don't. Um, and, um, and I'm not going to be obsessed with trying to. So, don't, don't make me. But I do try to make right decisions. How did I get cancer? Well, I got cancer. 
way back when I actually it started way back when I was in Mexico. Didn't know it was cancer. Thought it was an eczema uh, until it metastasized to my colorectal area. And then found out I had cancer. So that'll be almost three years in, uh, it'll be three years in April. Uh, so I have, uh, uh, it's called extra mammary pancreas disease with metastasis to the colorectal area. Does not, it's not a good statistical cancer to have. It bears about as well as pancreatic cancer. I, it was easier for me. Everybody, I always, people would ask me before I had my diagnosis, what would you do? I don't know if I should do chemo or I should, I don't know if I should do chemo again. What would you do? And my answer is always, um, I, I would, you have to pray about this decision. This, I can't make this decision for you. You have to pray about this decision. Um, and honestly, I, if God, if I had cancer and God would, God would really have to tell me to do chemo because I don't want to do chemo, but I'd be open to doing chemo because maybe God would give me cancer, allow me to have cancer. So that I would go do chemo to witness to some chemo nurse. And if that was his purpose, I'd be willing to do that. And I know a lot of people listening to this might think I'm crazy for that attitude. But that's just my spiritual perspective. Now, it was easy for me to not do chemo with this cancer because statistically, my cancer does not respond to chemo. Well, I should take that back. About two years before my diagnosis, Mayo did a study on 10 people with my cancer. It's a very rare cancer, so there's not a lot of data on it. Um, and they were so excited about the study because one person lived 16 months. Woohoo! Okay, that's not a win for me. All the rest of them are dead, and one person lived 16 months, and they were so excited about this trimibizab or whatever it was, this new drug that they were doing on these people. This guy went into remission because when these people got in the study, they went on the drug right away. So he went on the drug for four to six months, went into remission, and then he refused to take the drug again when his cancer came back. So that told me, like, okay, it must be pretty horrible to take that drug if that guy was the only success story and he said, I ain't doing it again. So I thought, okay, well, this is a really easy decision for me to refuse chemo. So other people have a different decision, okay? This chemo has been successful for all these patients. You should do it. And that's a tougher decision than my decision was. So it was an easy decision for me just to go straight natural because there really wasn't any other options. So um, that's that's the So I'm in the same boat. And, and I know the blessing for my patients for me to have cancer is that I can relate to them. Um, and... Uh, and really understand where they're at. Um, I have some patients, there's certain cancers that a person has really no symptoms, and other cancers where a person has more symptoms. My cancer, I have, I know if it's getting bad because I have symptoms, I have pain. So um, that's a blessing and a curse in itself because well, I don't have pain, how do I know if I'm getting better or worse? Well, then you got to do testing. Well, I can tell if I'm getting worse. So um, that gives me some indication. So I can understand where people are at. So if you had to, I had to deal with those emotional things too. And, I, and it, it's not something that ever goes away. So I deal with grief. I deal with, uh, with uh, despair. Uh, that's a big one for people. Uh, I don't have the issues with anxiety. So it's, um, it's easier for me to try to support those people. Uh, but I can at least relate to a lot of the other emotional pieces that people
But that's definitely a piece of everybody's cancer. Um, I don't, we haven't found that it's necessarily a, a major cause, though, especially with breast cancers, it can be a larger piece of the cause um, than with some other cancers. Why with breast cancer? Well, because breast cancer, it's been found that it's some of some of your body parts that you give to others are tend to be uh, have more emotional causes to them. At least the emotions tends to be a bigger piece of the cause, you could say. Yes. Questions regarding breast cancer: some categories, um, MRIs, um, mammograms. I'm high, I'm high risk breast cancer, and so they want me to be on tamoxifen. It's my other question for five years. Those Did kind of things. Do you have a diagnosis of cancer? Hyperplasia. Okay. Yes. So tamoxifen is an aromatase inhibitor. So that's what we were talking about with the things that pull out bad estrogens, mm -hmm. are the things that, that will either pull them out directly or things that will diminish the, the Aromatization is that aromatase is an enzyme that's in the cells that that um, breaks down the hormones into bad estrogens, you could say. So uh, that drug blocks that. Well, that, that's, you could do some natural things that could do that same thing, not nearly to the same extent that, that a drug will do, but it will be milder with less symptoms um, and can have have really good benefits too. So there's other things that you could do from a natural standpoint. Um, it, 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 cancer, when you talk about cancer prevention, it's very difficult because, well, uh, uh, you know, doing the right things that might not prevent cancer for everybody, but they could push it out into the distance a little bit farther. And that's really the goal. And we talk about, when you talk about, does our clinic cure cancer? We get that call all the time. What's your cure rate? Uh, we don't have a cure rate. We don't even talk about cure because I don't even think anybody's ever cured of cancer short of God doing his work, which he's the one who's who's doing his work with everybody anyhow. But it's not about curing somebody. It's about turning a, a, a disease that normally kills people into a chronically managed you know, disorder so that you can help manage this person and, and instead of that person going straight downhill, we can level them off and keep them as healthy as long as possible. Cancer is probably going to take my life. I could accept that. Um, and uh, am I looking for the rife and the nutrition and everything that we do to cure me? No, I'm looking for it to keep me alive for as long as God has me on this earth so I can keep helping people. So um, th that's the bottom line. Dangers of tamoxifen, MRIs yearly, oh. mammograms yearly. I mean, you. The dangers of doing... I, mean, I went to Penny George Alternative so, for Alina, and they're like, take all the din you want, but your estrogen's so high, don't even try. Do so tamoxifen. There's, you know. not, there's not horrible dangers of tamoxifen. There's, there's some horrible side effects that a lot of people don't like. So um, I'm not against... My training is integrative. So I'm not against using medications and using chemotherapy and using radiation or whatever we have to do if it's the best thing for the person. So it's, be careful what you read on the internet in clumping everybody together. Sure. So that just because this person hated tamoxifen doesn't mean it's not the right thing for you. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to give a standard answer to that mm -hmm. unless I saw your labs. Mm -hmm. But um, 
doing something like that is not necessarily the wrong thing to do. Right. You do have to be aware of that of MRI, CT scans, um, and radiation via mammograms might not be the best thing for a person, okay? So a CT scan of your breasts is equivalent of, take is about 50, you know, chest x-rays. That's a lot of radiation. So mammogram is a lot of radiation. Is there a better way to do it? Can you do thermography instead? An MRI, no radiation. But you do have gadolinium as a dye, as long as you don't have sensitivity to gadolinium, you could detoxify that. No problem. There's people that have sensitivity to gadolinium, and then that makes it worse. But so MRI, ultrasound are your ultrasound's the best. Uh, thermography is completely non-invasive as well. MRI is less invasive than a mammogram for sure. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Um, with the family history of multiple types of cancer, is there specific um, genetic testing that you do here? for prevention or different genetic kits or anything that you like or recommend? Yes, so there are some, so remember there's there are some genetic components and there are certain cancers that have genetic components, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. But let's say if I don't have any of those specific gene issues in my family, we just have this familial trend of cancer. So you can have a, a familial trend to something that isn't genetic. We all grew up on the farm. I had one patient years ago that said, he grew up on a potato farm. Third, he was fourth generation that would have inherited this farm. And his dad made him leave at 21. He goes, you would inherit this farm, but you got to... He said not one of his relatives lived past 60. They all died of cancer. Mm -hmm. He said, you know how hard it is to kill those stupid potato bombs? We're spraying that stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. So he goes, my dad said, it's from the poison. We're spraying these stupid potatoes. Buy organic potatoes, they're part of the dirty dozen, okay? So that's one thing you want to always get organic. They're so highly sprayed. So there are familial trends to disease, including cancer, that has nothing to do with genetics, right? It has to do with they all grew up and drank the same water. We all grew up and were exposed to the same poisons, right? But there are some other genetic, that we do a genetic test that doesn't just look at specific um, Lynch syndrome genes. Um, for colon cancer, but we're looking at genes for detoxification. So that's one huge issue with patients. We all have, you know, the same gene defects on my PON1 pathway, which is a genetic pathway in my liver detoxification pathway. So I don't, I have just become a slow detoxer because my phase two pathway is like blocked. It's like half the speed of normal. So everything going through, my liver's always going, hey, we're backed up here. Pond 1 is just taking its time again, and it's circulating throughout your bloodstream again and getting deposited in your cells. Remember what we talked about. Mm -hmm. So defects in specific pathways are, are one of the biggest things that we look at. So if you have cytochrome P450 pathway defects, Pond 1 pathway defects, these are detoxification pathways, you're going to have a slower detoxification. So addressing those things specifically, there's very specific nutrients that you can help speed up that pathway. Um, there's benefit to doing genetic testing that way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it could be familial, and uh, just because of hyperexposure to the same thing, you grew up on a potato farm, it can be genetic, um, like we all have, we have Lynch syndrome, so my risk of getting colon cancer is like 80%. Or we can have genetic, meaning I have detox pathway defects that I inherited from my, my uh, parents, 
and I have slower detox pathways, so I have a greater risk of toxification and a greater risk of cancer myocarditis. <coughs> All right, Vic, yes. Good. So I have two questions that are unrelated, but I'm just going to combine them so I get them in. Um, so um, what are your thoughts and concerns regarding palliative chemotherapy? And then what are your thoughts and about the whole um, ketogenic craze? Okay, so palliative chemotherapy <laughs> is, is, is completely worthless. So all you're doing is, well, we can't cure you, we know this isn't going to really help you, but we don't know what else to do, so take this drug. Um, maybe this will give you a little bit longer life. And I guess with some people, I don't want to be too harsh, with some people that maybe fared well, so here's, we talk about detox pathways, you hear people that, I went through chemo, I just sailed right through, I did great, I didn't have any symptoms. Tell you right now, you have really good cytochrome B450 and POD1 pathway defects. You are detoxifying that stuff, boom, just like that. Praise God. So it got there, killed the cancer, you detoxed it, that's great. And other people, they did chemo, and it just, just about killed them, right? Well, they have slower detox pathways, they can't get rid of it, and it just circulates again, it kills healthy cells. It circulates again, it kills more healthy cells, and it keeps doing that until the person's dead, and they died at the chemo. So palliative chemo is just like any palliative medical care. We're not really trying to fix this problem anymore. We're just trying to make you comfortable um, through the process till death. And I don't know of anybody that would you know, I would certainly want to choose chemotherapy to make me, can you give me a pill? You know, don't give me a drug that's going to be so harsh on me. And, you know, maybe with some people it's going to prolong their life but what's it going to do for quality of life? Ketogenic diet craze. So ketogenic diet is a great diet if it's the right diet for you. So what is a ketogenic diet? Ketogenic is high fat, low carb, almost no carb diet, where you're getting your glucose, blood glucose level down to 50 to 70, um, even in, a, in a, almost a hypoglycemic state, in order for your body to start burning ketones. Once you burn ketones for energy, you're not, bur you're not burning through glycolysis in the, in the cells, and that could be extremely beneficial for some patients with cancer. The problem is, is that it all started with, with some well-written books by some researchers that um, were researching metabolic uh, disease of cancer. The problem is, that's not how everybody's body works. In truth, cancer can be fed through glycolysis, meaning through sugar pathways. Most cancer is fed through sugar pathways, but that's not the only fuel source for everybody's cancer. Some people's cancer is fed through amino acids. So going on a ketogenic diet, if your cancer is mainly fed by amino acids, could be disastrous. So, okay, so then you go, well, how were some people, if ketogenic is the only way to go for cancer, how could some people be helped, could be helped, because you can't argue that some, a lot of people were helped doing like a Gershon program, which is juicing, you know, 13 glasses of carrot juice a day, which is very opposite of ketogenic. You're just spiking your glucose. 
drinking 13 glasses yeah. of, of carrot juice. It, you know, it, the people that were helped with Gershon, their cancer was mainly fed through amino acids. So just spiking their glucose wasn't really a detriment. They got all the nutrients and the dense nutrients from the vegetable juices that they were drinking, and they had really very low protein. So they didn't have the amino acids that were feeding the cancer, and their cancer started, their cancer lost its fuel source. Plus the other things they were doing, they had, they had victory with their cancer. Problem is, a cancer could change. It could be very glycolytically driven, where if it's glycolytically driven, doing a ketogenic type diet might be beneficial, but then it could change as it's trying to stay alive, and it could change to, to the opposite. So we talk about three diets in our office, really, but we really don't go by that at all. So I, in my book, I talk about three diets, a ketogenic type diet where you're really strongly eliminating carbohydrates. Uh, those are for cancers that are fed glycolytically, and then the opposite end of the extreme is a low-protein diet, almost a vegan-type diet, um, uh, which um, is good for some people. But the truth is, it's somewhere in the middle for most people. How do you so, well, we test for it. So, so we do kinesiology testing and things to test for what's going to feed that cancer, what the feed current fuel source is. But how a person without getting tested is you trial and error. So I went on, I started juicing, and I felt like my cancer was getting worse. Okay, well, then I switched to ketogenic, and that helped put a halt to it. And that worked for three months or so, and I felt like my cancer was getting worse, so I went back to juicing. That's probably a more proper way to do it. I just, I don't like anything that you see like, this cures cancer. If you have cancer, do this. Ah, almost nothing classifies into that, okay? So... Um, and we've, we've had patients honestly come to us and say, okay, I'll do the rife, but I didn't do a diet, I didn't do anything else. Okay, well, they got better. <laughs> so it's like, so it's, so, and we had patients that did it, that did everything right and didn't get better. And we had patients that were so obsessively compulsive about doing everything right. And maybe that was the problem. So that's where you get back to emotions. Mm, yep. uh, making something a god in your life that you shouldn't be making a god in your life. So we don't want people, we tell people this is a diet, this is a lifestyle, this isn't, this isn't a religion, okay? Just do what's right. You think that this is what's fueling your cancer, let's cut this out. One of the, probably the most common things that you could say that dietary that are most likely feeding most people cancer are I hate to say it, we're in Minnesota and Wisconsin here, dairy. Uh, dairy, and the reason is, is because dairy is to help things grow. <laughs> so dairy has all these growth factors in there to take this baby cow and turn it into a 1,200-pound cow in a matter of nine months. Okay? It'll take a baby person and, and help it double its weight in a matter of you know, several months. So that's what dairy's purpose is. So as we adults are eating dairy when we have cancer, all those growth factors feed this pathway called the mTOR pathway that is not necessarily a good pathway to be feeding. And if you're just promoting, like to your daughters, you mentioned earlier, preventing cancer in general, would you, can you categorize your top basic 
supplements, things to eat, not eat from non-dairy, non-gluten. I don't know to probiotics. So. Yeah, well, it's partly Super depends great. on the cancer that you're trying to prevent, right? So we do have a breast cancer prevention bundle as far as nutrition goes. But top things not to eat would be, number one would be just cut out dairy mm-hmm. or cut it way down. It doesn't have to be like, I can't eat any dairy or I'm going to die. But I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to have dairy. I'm not going to stop eating cheese and ice cream and milk and, and things like that. If I put a little cream in my coffee once in a week or something like that, it's not going to hurt you. But you're cutting back on those growth factors. Gluten tends not to be, at least in our perspective, tends not to be a big driver for cancer. Gluten can be very inflammatory to the gut and other issues. And we typically recommend people to go on a gluten-free diet, but unfortunately, most of the gluten-free foods are not very good food that are out there. So um, when we talk about, when we have a patient that comes in, we're really concerned with the cancer. We're not concerned about other food sensitivities at that point. So, um, so we, 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 everybody's so across the board, the rest of it. Um, some people could eat, you know, chicken, but they can't eat red meat and pork. Some people, so it's just, it's just really, but the, the, probably the bottom line, most common thing is dairy, I'd say. Even more than sugar? Well, you got to cut down on your sugar, yes. It shouldn't be gross sugar, right? Like cookies and candies and things like that. But um, it's, you know, to go completely ketogenic, I would not say that that's necessarily the right thing to do for everybody, for sure. But, um, to, yeah, cut down on sugar, cut, cut dairy out. Sure. And is inflammation a high factor in cancer? I mean, because well, you know, there's things that in so anti-inflammatory kind of diets help. Yes, it can. So chronic inflammation, yes. So understand there's a difference between acute inflammation. Acute inflammation is a process of an immune system reaction, and that's really what you want with cancer. To kill cancer, you're trying to create uh, an increase in immune response, which is going to be inflammatory. But it's chronic inflammation from my body's trying to respond to toxins that causes disease, right? So you're getting on some curcumin and anti-inflammatory things. Curcumin has got so many studies that cancer killer in itself. It's a great product to get on. Um, but there's some general things that would be good. Yes? I'm just wondering about raw dairy, like raw milk and raw cream. So raw dairy has the same effect. So it still has all the growth factors. So if you don't have cancer and you're raising your kids and you're going to use raw dairy uh, with them because it's healthier, it's not, it's not um, pasteurized, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're talking about cancer, it, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. If it's raw, uh, Irish, organic, nothing. It's, just, it's still got the mTOR growth factors in there for any cells, including cancer cells. How about all the alternatives, from rice milk to oat milk? Yeah, so that's where you could use some alternative. A nut milk is probably best. Coconut They don't milk. have the growth. Factor. Correct, right. Goat cheese? It's still going to have... It's still going to have those mTOR. Again, everything in moderation. You know, it doesn't mean you can't ever have, you know, some uh, some goat cheese on your salad. But um, you're just trying to cut back on these major feeders. Yeah. What are your
your favorite forms of other forms of detox, like sauna? Oh, so there's other ways to help your liver out, right? So if you could get detoxing through your skin, through through saunas, that's great, right? And doing a sauna can actually be beneficial for cancer in other ways, depending on where your cancer is. If you have abdominal cancer, you're not really heating the core tip up enough to do any damage to that. But if you have breast cancer, doing a sauna can heat that tumor up uh, to actually kill cancer cells in the sauna. So um, saunas have great benefits, detoxing through saunas. Foot bath detox can be beneficial. Um, anything you're going to take, take stress off your liver is beneficial. What about a coffee enema? Coffee enemas? You never ask. <laughs> <laughs> so coffee enemas are something that we recommend all our patients to do, but all our patients do not always do coffee enemas. So coffee enemas can be really beneficial. They can help. Really, the real benefit of coffee enemas are is that it stimulates your parasympathetics. You have two sides of your autonomic nervous system, your automatic nervous system, your sympathetics, which are your fight or flight system, and your parasympathetics, which is your rest and relaxation. Included in there is your detoxification. So stimulating that parasympathetic nervous system helps stimulate liver detoxification. So it will help also um, to clean out the colon if a person's constipated too, but really you do coffee enemas to stimulate parasympathetics. And one of the most common comments we got we get from patients that start coffee enemas is this, it just helps me relax because it's stimulating your parasympathetic is what it's doing. So it's a great tool to help with. I don't know what that is. What is that? Coffee enema? Coffee enema is using is an enema um, using coffee. <laughs> Just as simple as that. <laughs> so you use a, you use a blood roast coffee, and there's a specific coffee that's best to use. An organic, very blood, lightly roasted coffee. We have those coffee beans. Um, and, um, and there's a way to do it. We have multiple videos on our website and our blog. And a lot of these questions, too, please go to our website and go to our blog. We have a search on our blog. You can search the question. And... I think we have probably 4,500 blog pages. So um, we also have about 450 videos too. So if you go to our YouTube channel and talk about genetics and stuff, I have probably at least 50 videos. I also gave you a copy of my book. Um, we'll have a, uh, a, a, it's a new edition coming out uh, early this summer. It's actually almost completely different. Um, so we're going to have a new cover because it's, and I looked through that, I thought, why did they organize it this way? This is horrible. <laughs> so it's very differently organized. I think it's much better. But um, that, that will help you. Uh, and become a YouTube, uh, you know, what do you call it? Subscribe. Subscribe to us on YouTube because that will help you see our new videos and look at our blog. And if you do that, then you can get on our newsletter list. Um, we send out a newsletter every couple of weeks, too. So. Yes. This might be a dumb question, but um, so I'm not dealing with cancer per se. I have five kids and two with autism. So a lot of what you're saying is actually, I can relate with them because I do a lot of natural or try to heal them in a this way. But is there, 
can you do too much detox? So we do foot baths and um, Epsom salt baths and um, just a lot of different things. Is is there such thing as too much detox? I would say it would be too much detox if you're doing too much of phase zero or phase one and two without supporting the elimination process. That would be the too much. Okay. So other than that, like doing Epsom salt baths, um, foot detoxes, saunas, you can't really do too much of that. The only thing I would say is with saunas, I mean, yeah, if you're going to do more than one sauna a day and you're eliminating a lot of sweat and you're not replenishing your electrolytes, then yeah, you want to replenish your electrolytes, but that would be the only reason. And doing an Epsom salt, you're getting some magnesium from that, so that's good. All right, was this helpful? Yes. Okay. We weren't sure if anybody was going to show up tonight. It's <laughs> cool. Crowd. So cool. Yeah. So uh, I, I used to do a lot of classes, and I haven't uh, done any for a very long time. I used to teach doctors, and um, I haven't done that for a while, too. I did a class in uh, Ohio, was it last one, um, to a group of Amish people. There were several hundred people there. That was kind of fun. We taught, we, I had to speak on, on cancer and Lyme, mm-hmm. right. uh, both. I only had six hours, so I was cruising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had a slide presentation. So I purposely did a slide presentation because I knew it would take it more than, oh my gosh, no more than an hour and a half. So uh, hopefully I didn't bore you. This crowd over here was the sleeping compartment. <laughs> I just, you guys gotta wake up now. Yeah. I just have one comment because I, I'm an RN and I've worked in a metal medical clinic for many, many, many years. And my doctors used to say, that woman is coming in here and she's so worried about getting cancer, she's gonna get cancer. Yeah. And multiple patients, yes. They yeah, are. that's true. I mean, Your all anxiety that stress. Could just yeah. control that. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Dr. So, Bonner? Excuse me. Does, does the rife have a shelf life in terms of uh, the, bulb, uh, the bulb's ability to, no. to repeat the frequencies? No. No. Because it's usually a gas. It's a gas-filled bulb. So, uh, no, I mean, it, it will never wear out, but it can break. But the one I, I, the rife I have, I have two rifes at home. Um, one is a newer one, but the other one is nine years old now. Mm-hmm. It's a tube bulb then, rather than yeah. The, than the, I know I see it, the the new bulbs here are more of a no. Those are only for skating. Okay. So we we send everybody home with the tube bulb. Everybody uses a tube bulb. I use a tube bulb at home. Does uh, does it benefit to have the the, the computer part of it reprogrammed at all, or the program checked, or uh, you could you could update the frequencies. There's new programs that are that True Rife is coming out with all the time. If you if you were going to use like a new flu frequency or something, um, but if you if we have a patient that is like you that's doing well on their program that we created for them eight years ago, uh, we're not changing it. Just stay on that program. Stay doing it. So it's only if a person's like going downhill that we'll change that program. So then then we need to tweak your program. Do the patients register rife or do they buy so one? It's, uh, so our, our packages, our plans include a rife machine. So they own it. Because they're going to use it for the rest of their life. 
Do you have any talks <coughs> online coming up? Um, uh, I don't have any talks coming up. <laughs> but uh, we yeah, could... you do in June. You do. Oh yeah, we do. That's right. Another talk with you. Where is um, it? In June. It's in. Um, but it's at the hotel by Mall of America. What's that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Radisson Blue. <laughs> there you go. It's at Radisson Blue. Okay. There you go. Uh, we, we, uh, I have a lot of videos. Yeah. Online yeah. Online. Okay. There's a full live conference on YouTube. There's a full live conference. A bunch yes. of videos that you did. That's right. We're good. We're doing those okay. Too. Is it very common for people to share that Rife machine? Like, can you put multiple programs on you mean one? People in one family? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Extended family in the family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what you're dealing with. If a person that has you know, very active cancer, they want to be doing that every night. <coughs> so it's hard to then send it over to. I had one gal who had Lyme disease to change them. and her dad had cancer, and then she would use it for a week and she'd give it to him for a week and kind of go back and forth, but that became problematic. Okay. So. Can you explain what a right machine is? Uh, no. <laughs> so a Rife machine is a uh, frequency generator that uses a, a light uh, a Tesla bulb gas-filled tube, uh, and the, it's using so it's using light free frequencies through light. So that's a Rife machine over there on the shelf. That larger one on the bottom that has a GRS two on the top. It says so that's a Rife machine. Um, and the bulb that's connected to that is that little spiral tube. <coughs> you can use any bulb. Uh, we send people home with the tube that's about this big. That's a, a, a cylinder that is a gas-filled tube with a plexiglass cover to it. So it's really unbreakable. That one you could roll over on it. You could crack it or cut yourself on it or break drop it on the floor. You'd break it. But you, you, could, you can't break meant to be a night tube. So you could keep it in your bed, roll over, it falls on the floor, you're not gonna break it. So the idea is that Wright, Wright discovered that everything down to its smallest particle vibrates at a certain frequency. So that's called quark in quantum physics. So, um, so it is with cancer. It vibrates at a specific frequency. He theorized that if you could hit it at its own frequency, you could cause it to resonate. And you could cause possible lysis, meaning the cell breaks up and dies. Um, and that was his theory. And he used, he went off that theory and tried to help cancer patients. And he had actually great success and won lots of awards. And then uh, when the AMA came through and basically um, shut down anybody that was using anything other than pharmaceuticals, which was in the early 50s, he was one that was targeted. Uh, and uh, so all his equipment was taken. He was put out of business, and he died seven years later. Just gave up the ghost because they took all his equipment. Uh, and uh, they actually used his equipment to try to. This was during the Cold War, so they tried to use his equipment to actually produce disease in people. And well, if we hit people with frequencies of anthrax, could we cause anthrax? Hey, we could use this in war. We'll fly an airplane over, you know, North Korea, and we'll 
use a giant rife bulb and we'll run anthrax frequencies and everybody will get anthrax and we'll win the war. Uh, well, first of all, it wouldn't work that way. You have to be a lot closer than flying an airplane over, number one. And if you hit somebody with an anthrax frequency and they don't have anthrax, it's not going to do anything to them. <clears throat> so um, if they had anthrax, it would help your body kill the anthrax. So after much work, which was a huge godsend to people like me, they actually mapped out the quantum physics frequencies for thousands of diseases. And with the Freedom of Information Act, that all became public knowledge. So um, you can Google rife frequencies for breast cancer, and there's hundreds of them that are known frequencies that could benefit breast cancer. So um, we use those frequencies, plus we scan people for eight to nine hours to see what other frequencies are going to be good for them, plus we test them with kinesiology to find out what frequencies are going to be good for them, plus we put in frequencies for what we find to be the cause say H. pylori, we talked about that. We're going to put in H. pylori frequencies. So that's how we develop people's program. And then we write a program that might be one, two, three weeks long now, and that they're rotating through that program every night. And we want people to mainly be treated while they sleep, because we don't want, we don't want people to be obsessed with treating their cancer. Like we said, from an emotional standpoint, um, I don't think that's healthy. So, okay, well, I have cancer. So I run the Rife every night while I sleep. Um, do I run it during the day, too? Yeah, when I'm here at work, lots of times I'll run it. But it interferes with my phone calls, so if I'm on the phone with the patient, I have to turn it off. So I'm not running it that frequently when I'm here during the day, except when my staff come in and say, why don't you have your Rife on? Um, which they do. So, and, but when I get home, I run in the Rife, so I'm getting as much Rife time as possible. Now, at times when I'm feeling better, I do less, but I still run the right at night, every night. At times when I'm feeling worse, which is right now, I'll do more therapies and do more right time. So, um, the more the better, within reason, as long as I don't become obsessed and don't live any of my life. Because I think I'm here for a purpose, and it's not just to cure my cancer, it's to help other people. So... Um, and I want other people to still have a purpose in life, to raise their kids or to help other people, not to just be obsessed with curing their cancer. That's why we run, that's why we write programs that people could do while they sleep. So they can get eight hours of the rife every day while they're sleeping. So that's what a rife is. Yes, it's a bulb. Yes, it's a light. So we tell people to put it under their cover, snuggle with it. It's best to have it as close to the cancer within reason, close to your body as possible within reason. We tell people to struggle with it, either they fall asleep, it'll fall by their side or something. Um, as long as within a couple feet of them, it's going to have good healing benefits. So it's going to it's going to work well. Um, and most people, like me, you know, you kind of feel naked without it. You wake up and you grab your right and sleep with it. Grab your ball. Man. It's comforting. All right. Well, in, we're going to have to call it quits here. What's that? In here it says you can join your prayer groups. What are, the, what yes, are those? Yes, we do have they a prayer here? group on our a Facebook prayer group. So not in person, it's on Yes, Facebook. it's on Facebook. Oh. Well, so we could join it on this. Well, thank you for coming. I appreciate it.